0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fisk'em your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette. Today we're recording from my apartment, La Chateau T-Not, uh, on the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. We actually had a full episode uh, ready to roll yesterday. Mike and I were scheduled to be in the studio this uh, this afternoon. You're, I'm recording this Sunday night. Um, And the plan was to go in in the afternoon and get everything done. But I have just been, I've been terribly sick pretty much all day. And I have no idea what it is. It it is similar to food poisoning, and I'm going to assume that's what it is. But I can't figure out what I've eaten that would have done it. Uh, But it's just been a remarkably unpleasant day. I started feeling sick around 10 this morning, and it's now almost 10 at night. And I don't feel any better at all. Uh, Despite you know drinking water, taking an antacid, you know nibbling on some bread, I still feel like garbage. So rather than give you a full episode of me being blah, uh, what we're going to do instead is give you the Law 140 that we had planned because that's still going to be about 30 or 40 minutes. It gives you something to listen to on a Monday, and then at some point midweek we'll hopefully get back in the studio and cover the news. Uh, But before we get into the Law 140 stuff. Uh, I do want to thank everyone who tweeted their thoughts about why they listened to Fiskamall. I'd asked y'all to do that in our podcast episode last week. I had probably about two dozen or so folks send us different uh, messages throughout the week. And it's funny because I can tell the people who listen on a Monday and the people who listen later on in the week based on when folks decided to tweet their uh, their thoughts out. I want to give you a few of them. Uh, We have Michael. He says, uh, I'm not a Twitterer. But I listen to Fiscamall because I want to learn about legal fuckery, and also I enjoy knowing more about the Law 140s. And my wife, being Latina, has opened my eyes a lot to the fact that racism is still a thing. Fiscamall gives me more information about what is actually going on out there. Uh, Leslie, who is at Mimster Zoo, says Hello, Twitter Sphere, uh, with another shout out for Fiscamall Podcast. Because Greg Doucette, in parentheses, with the help of diligent Mike the Sound Guy, uh, schools us every week in politics and law. Law 140 reveals our world to laymen in real time in an era when it's sorely needed. Five stars. Uh, And then we have Sam, who's at Wolfpack without the K underscore five. Uh, I listen because of a host of reasons that have already been far better articulated than I ever could. Uh, But one of my most important reasons to listen is because the pod and Greg are data-driven. And that's probably, that's a high compliment, especially in this uh, political era of fake news and everything else. I try to heavily source everything so that y'all know that you can trust me. And being described as data driven although it it you know to normal people it might be a bland compliment to me, I think it is an awesome compliment because it means i 'm doing the right job, doing what I'm supposed to be doing uh, Oh also, I found out that Clark Neely from the Cato Institute is a listener you know i don't it, i've been such a Cato fan for a while i've been an Institute of justice fan for a while because they are politically conservative but still believe in reforming the screwed up parts of our system like I do. So to find out that someone on staff, I mean, Neely's their VP for criminal justice, uh, listens to this podcast like it was just awesome. So I appreciate all of you. At some point, I'm going to take your tweets and actually put them into a thread uh, on the Fiskamall Twitter account so that I can find them more easily in the future. But from the standpoint of experimenting, uh, I thought it turned out very well. And thank you. I truly do appreciate it. All right. So the Law 140 for this episode is going to be an overview on federalism and the concept of federalism, what that means, how the courts have interpreted it, uh, because there's a particular story out about Attorney General Beauregard, uh, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, filing suit against the state of California for some of their sanctuary policies relating to immigration. And I wanted to give people kind of the historical background on how that's going to pan out and what the courts are going to be looking at. Because really, the case is going to test some of the boundaries of what federalism is. You know, If I were ruling just based on what I know, uh, frankly, I would end up ruling against the federal government. I'm going to give you that as a spoiler alert now. Uh, but I don't know that the current courts would actually rule that same way. I think there's actually a pretty good chance that you'll see the Department of Justice win on some of these and lose on some others. But we're going to get into all of that. Before we do, if you have not already, please join the conversation online. The Twitter account is at FiskeMall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can also leave us comments on our website, FiskeMall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, you can join us at Patreon.com slash Fisk. That is T R r e o n dot com slash F-S-C-K. Among the stuff we have at the Patreon page are a handful of other bonus episode Law 140s to kind of give you information on some of the other legal things. Uh, Every now and then I post questions about how we want to guide the show going forward. You can also leave us comments there and participate with our other patrons. Uh, We actually have quite a few people that are patrons for the podcast. I think it's awesome. We're at 94 patrons As of this episode, which is phenomenal. It's absolutely fantastic. And once we get to 150, we're going to have to start doing these twice a week, uh, because that is my promise to you. So please do those things if you have not already. Okay, so let's talk about this, uh, this whole story about California. So back in 2017, the California legislature, as part of its reputation for being welcoming to immigrants, people who aren't from here, They passed a trio of bills that have truly offended the uh, the federal government. So I'm I'm going to give them to you in numerical order. You have SB 54, which I'm assuming is Senate bill. You have SBs and ABs. Uh, ABs are Assembly bills. That's my guess. I don't actually know. In North Carolina, we don't have the B in it, and it's either S or H, Senate or House. So it'd be like you know S 792. Uh, but every state does it a little bit differently. You have SB 54, which is basically their their sanctuary law. So essentially, this prohibits local law enforcement from telling federal agents uh, when an immigrant is going to be released from jail or prison because that type of information is not available to the public. So the law prohibits any, quote, non-public personal information from being given to the federal government. The, uh, the next one, is Assembly Bill 103. So this is the detention review law, I guess you would call it. And essentially it requires the California Attorney General to personally, or through a delegated individual, but they have to review any non-federal facility, so any local facility or any state facility, where immigrants are being detained on the federal government's behalf to basically verify that it's uh, it's up to snuff. So states don't have power over federal facilities. The state government can't do anything about you know a post office, for example. But if a building that it normally does have power over is housing federal inmates, uh, California has argued that they have the right and obligation to review that and make sure that it's up to code. And then you have assembly Bill 450 which is a a workplace raid law that basically says that if you're a private employer, you're not allowed to give the federal government access to non-public areas. If a normal member of the public can't get to it, the federal government can't get to it either. And the only time you can give employee records to the government is if there's a warrant compelling them to do so. Now, there's a small exception to this. Uh, The Immigration authorities can review Form I-9, which is the federal document that we all fill out when we start a new job, verifying that we are, in fact, eligible to work in the United States. So people can show up and uh, review the I-9 forms, but if that happens, the bill also requires that employers notify their employees within 72 hours of a notice by the federal government that they want to look at those I-9 forms And then within 72 hours after getting the results back, notifying the employees of who is actually being flagged as uh, being in the country illegally. So these trio of bills, and there's other pieces to all of them, but these are the main provisions that the Department of Justice doesn't like. They're arguing that the state of California is blocking the federal government from doing its job to enforce immigration and naturalization laws. So... Before we get into the federalism breakdown, I want to assume that y'all know kind of some of the background stuff. So, like going back to the Greeks coming up with democracy, uh, the Magna Carta in England, the Divine Right of Kings, etc., etc., etc. I assume all of y'all learned that stuff through you know your primary education or college, if that was the type of thing that you studied. If you have not heard of those things, uh, check Wikipedia because it's all there. I can go into it, but then we'll be here for hours, because there's a lot of history in the evolution of uh, the view of power. But in this particular case, I want you to think of it in really kind of like five different chunks or eras. You have the pre-Constitution era of looking at it. So the notion that, you know, might makes right. Uh, Louis Fourteenth of France was said to have uh, said, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. This notion that kings are the sovereigns, their power is derived from God, not the people. And rebellion, therefore, is one of the gravest of sins because you're not just rebelling against the king, you're rebelling against God himself. Uh, Then you have this, you know, the American Revolution and that view of how that changes and the states become the supreme embodiment of the will of the people. So you had, at the time of the Revolution, one of the biggest publications was Common Sense by Thomas Paine. It was very impactful on uh, us actually revolting. So we had the disputes with England, but at the time, most colonists were hoping to reconcile because they still saw themselves as fundamentally British. Uh, Common Sense really ignited the call for independence and setting up a new country. I've actually got a um, a copy of Common Sense on my bookshelf that was a gift to me. I'm going to give you a couple excerpts of it, but essentially Thomas Paine argued that power was derived from the people itself and that government was a necessary evil in order to restrain people from their baser natural impulses um, and basically talked about having an initial constitution and how that might be structured and everything else. But one of the things he, that made him so influential is that he was very forceful in how he described kind of the state of affairs. You know, so, for example, you had this notion of the divine right of kings. Well, when Paine was, was describing monarchs, this is what he said, quote, Could we take off the dark covering of antiquity? And trace them to their rise, we should find the first of them, nothing better than the principal ruffian of some restless gang whose savage manners or preeminence and subtlety obtained him the title of chief among plunderers. My god, like he was he was pretty harsh on that, but one of the great passages that he has, and in the last sentence of it is one of my very favorite in the entire book. Uh, or pamphlet, I guess I should say. It wasn't really a book back then. But he writes, quote, The cause of America is, in a great measure, the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances have and will arise which are not local but universal, and through which the principles of all lovers of mankind are affected, and in the event of which their affections are interested. The laying a country desolate with fire and sword, declaring war against the natural rights of all mankind, and extirpating the defenders thereof from the face of the earth, is the concern of every man to whom nature hath given the power of feeling, of which class, regardless of party censure, is. We have it in our power to begin the world over again. It was It's such a, a phenomenal pamphlet. I love Thomas Paine. I love John Locke. A lot of the classical writers, their writing style is weird by modern sensibilities, but it's just so good. Um, so think of that as the pre-Constitution era of power. Then you have the Constitution being ratified up to the Civil War. That's Era two. Era three is from the Civil War until the Great Depression. Then you have from the Great Depression until what we would call the Rehnquist Revolution from the standpoint of jurisprudence. That's the fourth era. And then the fifth era is where we are today, so from Rehnquist onward. We're going to cover all five of those. Well, I kind of already covered the first one. We're going to cover the next four uh, coming up. But that is how it, it helps to think of it that way when you're thinking about how power has evolved in the history of the country, because we've been around for a long time. I mean, you got to figure independence was declared in 1776, the Constitution was ratified in 1789. So you're looking at, you know, almost a quarter of a millennia under this particular document, written by a very smart people, uh, but done so in a way that it could be flexible and adapt to all of the societal changes that have happened in the 229 years since ratification. Um, So I just want to kind of give you that as an initial framework in your mind for how that all pans out. But what you have to remember is that at the time the Constitution was ratified, the states were seen as sovereign. So we all know about the Articles of Confederation that were first enacted after the Revolutionary War. And the idea was that That's how you embodied the popular will. You had a state legislature with a state governor, and that was as high as you could possibly go. The very proposal of having a federal government was seen as being too much like uh, having a centralized authority like we had in Britain. There was a fear that the president would end up being a new king. We actually, in a prior episode about the president's pardon powers... Talked about Federalist Number 69, where Alexander Hamilton convey, uh, compares how the envisioned United States president would be. And as he's doing this compare and contrast, he compares them to the King of England and the governor of New York and pitches the president as really different from both of those as far as how it's structured. So we'll give you a link to Federalist 69 in the show notes if you haven't read it already. Uh, it's a very fascinating document. All the Federalist papers are good. Like This, this is geek-out stuff that I thoroughly enjoy, kind of talking about the founding of the country. Uh, but the ratification of the Constitution represented a very dramatic shift in power, so it's not taking power from the people. That was already done in the standpoint of vesting that power in the states, but it shifted power from the states to the federal government. And if you look at the actual text of the Constitution, you can see that the federal powers were explicitly enumerated. So you have Article One, Section 8, lays out the specific powers of Congress. One of those that's going to matter for the purposes of this particular lawsuit is that it says Congress shall have the power to, quote, establish a uniform rule of naturalization and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies throughout the United States. The rule of naturalization has been interpreted to be everything related to immigration. So the Immigration and Nationality Act that we talked about in an earlier episode is derived from that specific grant of power to Congress in Article 1, Section 8. Uh, there are also certain powers that are explicitly forbidden in Article One, Section 9 that the federal government can never have. There are powers that the states are forever forbidden to have in Article One, Section 10. And then you have the supremacy clause in Article 6 that says that the federal constitution and the laws that are enacted pursuant to it are, quote, the supreme law of the land. So everything else everything that was not taken from the states and put into the federal government we call those police powers they're the states police powers now that includes law enforcement that part's a given but it's the phrase police powers is a term of art that covers pretty much everything else So marriage laws, for example, are traditionally a police power of the state. States can determine how they're going to be done. How long do you have to live in a state before you can get married there? How do you deal with divorces? How do you deal with child custody? Um, Things about inheritance. When you die, who gets your stuff? That is a state police power. Uh, Law enforcement, as I mentioned, is a police power. Basically anything that is not specifically contemplated in the federal constitution is presumed to be a power of the state government over you. Now, from there, certain states have adopted what is called home rule, which means that towns and municipalities have certain powers taken from the state and given to them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about home rule later on in the law 140. But at a general high level view, You have the federal government with certain enumerated powers that you can find within the text of the Constitution, and the states are left with everything else. So when you look at the ratification of the Bill of Rights, now this didn't happen until almost four years after the Constitution was ratified. The Tenth Amendment basically affirms that there are other powers that exist that aren't explicitly identified, and those powers are given to the states or to the people. You know, if it's a power that a state is prevented from having, then the people get it. If it's not, it's a state police power. Because the Bill of Rights, really, when it was enacted, it wasn't seen as changing anything. It was more of an insurance policy to make sure that future generations didn't misinterpret the body of the Constitution to do things that the framers thought government should not do. So there are two early Supreme Court decisions that are particularly important when it comes to interpreting the extent of certain language within the constitution when it comes to federal power now let me let me pause and insert a note here there are a lot of supreme court cases over the course of the history of the country a lot of them are important de- depending on who you talk to about any particular issue i'm giving you a handful of them that to me really are important from the standpoint of the federalism discussion If someone else has something else, please feel free to tweet me and I can, you know, republicize it. But these are kind of the biggins, if you will. And the first one is one that you hopefully learned in grade school. Actually, to be honest with you, you should have learned about all of these in grade school, but I don't know what they're teaching kids these days. Uh, But it was McCulloch versus Maryland. So this is 1819. This is 31 years after the Constitution has been ratified. Most of the founders are still around, but this is the first major case that covers what becomes known as the implied powers of Congress. So the federal government has enacted a bank. They had enacted the first Bank of the United States. It had a time-specific charter. And then when that charter expired, they created the second Bank of the United States, which was was a corporation, just like your modern banks, except it was owned and operated by the federal government. So as part of this... The states were not exactly pleased with this. There was a lot of fighting politically over whether or not the government should have a bank at all. And the Maryland legislature passed a law to tax the bank. And then the manager of the Baltimore branch, who's a federal government employee, refused to pay the taxes. So that was the basis for this lawsuit. And it's fascinating in part because they argued about it. Oral arguments in front of the Supreme Court took nine days Now, if you could look at most cases now, that never happens. Even the Obamacare decision, which we're going to talk about later on, was only three days of oral argument. They talked about this for nine days. And as part of its ruling, what the Supreme Court held was that Congress had implied powers under the Necessary and Proper Clause to do those things that were necessary to carry out its enumerated powers. So establishing a bank was part of its ability to regulate commerce and such. Uh, And Maryland's attempt to tax the bank violated the Supremacy Clause. So I'm going to give you some excerpts. They're lengthy because of how they used to write back then, but they give you some insight into the intellectual discussions that took place. And really, these form the basis for federalism decisions even to this day. I mean, I've actually, I've got a case in my actual law practice where I've cited McCulloch versus Maryland as case law that is still good case law. You know what I mean? Uh, But John Marshall was the chief justice. He was the one who wrote the opinion. And one of his uh, excerpts is, quote, from these conventions, the Constitution derives its whole authority. The government proceeds directly from the people is ordained and established in the name of the people and is declared to be ordained in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. The assent of the states in their sovereign capacity is implied in calling a convention and thus submitting that instrument to the people. But the people were at perfect liberty to accept or reject it, and their act was final." It required not the affirmance and could not be negatived by the state governments. The Constitution, when thus adopted, was of complete obligation and bound the state sovereignties. He goes on to say, If any one proposition could command the universal assent of mankind, we might expect it would be this, that the government of the Union, though limited in its powers, is supreme within its sphere of action. This would seem to result necessarily from its nature. It is the government of all. Its powers are delegated by all. It represents all and acts for all. Though any one state may be willing to control its operations, no state is willing to allow others to control them. The nation, on those subjects on which it can act, must necessarily bind its component parts. But this question is not left to mere reason. The people have, in expressed terms, decided it. By saying this Constitution and the laws of the United States will shall be made in pursuance thereof shall be the supreme law of the land, and by requiring that the members of the state legislatures and the officers of the executive and judicial departments of the states shall take the oath of fidelity to it. The government of the United States, then, though limited in its powers, is supreme, and its laws, when made in pursuance of the Constitution, form the supreme law of the land anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. He goes on, Among the enumerated powers, we do not find that of establishing a bank or creating a corporation. But there is no phrase in the instrument which, like the Articles of Confederation, excludes incidental or implied powers, and which requires that everything granted shall be expressly and minutely described. Even the Tenth Amendment which was framed for the purpose of quieting the excessive jealousies which had been excited, omits the word expressly, and declares only that the powers not delegated to the United States, nor prohibited to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people, thus leaving the question whether the particular power, which may become the subject of contest, has been delegated to the one government or prohibited to the other, to depend on a fair construction of the whole instrument. They also go on, you probably have heard the phrase, hopefully at some point, uh, that the power to tax involves the power to destroy. That was the second piece where they held that the Maryland tax violated the supremacy clause because it wouldn't make any logical sense to give a power to the federal government, that being the power to create the bank, that a state could then stymie or stop or defeat by using powers that it had. So enabling the state government to tax the federal creation to the point of its death uh, wouldn't make any logical sense. Therefore, the Maryland decision violated the Supremacy Clause. So this one interpreted Article 6, the Supremacy Clause, as well as the Necessary and Proper Clause, this notion that Congress has implied powers which was very different from the Articles of Confederation. Under the Articles, if it wasn't specifically written down, the federal government couldn't do it. That's part of why it was so dysfunctional. The next big case was a few years later, Gibbons versus Ogden, and I'm not going to go into too much detail about that one because we've already talked about it. So go back to episode 45 where we talk about the Dormant Commerce Clause And that's what Gibbons versus Ogden really is about. So remember, it was this dispute between uh, shipping licenses, some given by New York, some given by New Jersey. There was a fight over whose was right, and the Supreme Court held that they were both wrong. They were both invalid because there was a federal law governing shipping and that the Commerce Clause, regulating commerce, quote, among the several states – meant that the federal government controlled interstate commerce and not just interstate commerce, but that it included navigation. So the waterways, the instrumentalities and channels of commerce is the fancy language Uh, that was exclusive to Congress's authority. So that is kind of the constitutional era. So you've got the pre-Constitution era where the king was supreme. Then you get to the states being supreme. You're now in this post-constitutional era where the government, the federal government, is supreme as to those few things that it explicitly does. But then the states have power over everything else. Well, then fast forward to the Civil War. And remember, in the lead-up to the Civil War, there was a lot of discussion about how governments should be structured. Now, we all know it was about slavery. That was the basis for it. But there was a lot of intellectual time spent on how that fit or did not fit with the nature of government. You had this concept of the nullification doctrine, this idea that a state could nullify a federal law that they didn't agree with, totally violates the Supremacy Clause to the Constitution, completely goes against the idea of states ratifying the document through their people, through their ratifying conventions, and therefore being bound by them, uh, as the court wrote in McCulloch v. Maryland, um, so you ended up with the war, the Union won, and in response, you have what are called the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the United States Constitution. Uh, the 13th Amendment ended slavery. The 14th Amendment specified uh, look, tongue-tied, goodness, specified citizenship. If you were born in the United States or its territories subject to the laws thereof, you are in fact a citizen of the United States automatically. Uh, and then the 15th amendment prohibited states from denying people the right to vote based on their race. Well, the 14th amendment in particular was a very big change. So it didn't transfer power from states to the federal government like the constitution did, but what it did was it dramatically restrained the states their power relative to the rest of the populace. So if you think of if you think of power as like a pizza, the Constitution takes like a quarter of the pizza and gives it to the federal government. The 14th Amendment took like a third of the leftovers and just threw it in the trash and said the government, you're not allowed to do that. That gets exercised by the people. The government can't touch it at all. Uh, so, for example, the Equal Protection Clause, provided that no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Uh, you had this notion of the incorporation doctrine, the idea that that the rights protected in the Bill of Rights actually applied to the states as well as a result of the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, We talked about that one in episode 26. So What the Fisk, volume 3. Go check that out for more information on the incorporation doctrine. Well, initially, the interpretation of the 14th Amendment was used as a politically conservative tool. So we have something that we call the Lochner era of the Supreme Court, and it relates to a case, Lochner versus New York, where a New York law prohibited bakers from working more than 60 hours a week or more than 10 hours a day. The state enacted that law. A baker sued, saying that it was unfair because he wanted to work more hours than that, so she should have the right to do so. And the court ruled... That He was right. They ruled that the law, the state law, limiting work hours was unconstitutional because the 14th Amendment protected individual rights to liberty. It was interpreted that that included your personal freedom to engage in contract and whether or not you wanted to work for an employer who was forcing you to work 60 hours a week. And this court struck down the New York law. So during this era, you have... A Supreme Court that is very, what we would call judicially activist, where they're really writing laws from scratch in many cases. It's part of our common law system of government, kind of going beyond interpreting statutes to really just being very active in policing states, but only for politically conservative ends. So things like uh, the hour laws, things like minimum wage laws, things like federal child labor laws, if Congress tried to restrict uh, child labor The Supreme Court said, no, that should be left to the states. Um, Banking, insurance, those types of things, the court very heavily protected uh, the free market and commerce and the ability of private enterprise to continue free of excessive regulation by the government in general. Well, that all started changing around the time of the Great Depression. So, of course, everything is going to hell in a handbasket In the uh, you had the roaring 20s, we enact these super huge tariffs, trade falls off, you end up with the depression in the 30s where everyone's losing everything. And they uh, we elect Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who promises this new deal to help change things. He's got his 100 days and all this other stuff that he's doing. Well, the Supreme Court repeatedly struck down. New Deal legislation throughout the 1930s. FDR would propose something, Congress would pass it, he would sign it, the Supreme Court would say, no, that's unacceptable. And after a while, FDR got really frustrated by this. So you have this proposal that he had uh, characterized as court reform, But Buried Among the Reforms was adding a lot more Supreme Court justices. He wanted to expand the court from 9 to 15. This was characterized as court packing. And magically, what you saw is uh, Justice Owen Roberts, who had been part of the kind of Lochner-esque majority striking down these laws, uh, suddenly changed his mind. So he was characterized as the switch in time that saved nine. If you've heard the old uh, aphorism, a stitch in time saves nine. He was the justice, a switch in time saved nine. So we didn't end up with 15 Supreme Court justices. Uh, because there was a case called West Coast Hotel Company versus Parrish relating to a minimum wage law in Washington state that, you know, remember during the Lochner era, those got struck down. Well, magically after this court packing plan was announced, like a couple months later, the minimum wage law in Parrish was upheld. So that really shifts us into the post-depression era where the federal government gets a lot more power based on how the Supreme Court interprets different parts of the Constitution. Uh, so, Wickard v. Filburn, for example, is a very notorious case. It's back in 1942, and it involves Roscoe Filburn, who is a wheat farmer in Ohio. And as part of the Depression-era actions of the federal government, he was given a production quota for wheat. So he had 11.1 acres of wheat that he was allowed to farm, and instead he harvested roughly 23. So he went way above his quota, and his argument was that, look, the 11.1 acres are going to the marketplace. The rest of this is for my own personal use. I use this to feed my chickens, to feed my cows... And the Department of Agriculture said, we don't care. We're going to punish you for going above your quota. So Philburn sued. His argument was that it, the, his overharvesting uh, related to production and consumption for his own personal use. And those were local in character. They weren't interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court unanimously said that that didn't matter. So Justice Jackson wrote the particular opinion in that case, but the rule that he laid down was that even if the activity is local, even if it never goes across state lines, even if it's never regarded as commerce, quote, it may still, whatever its nature, be reached by Congress if it exerts a substantial economic effect on interstate commerce, And this, irrespective of whether such effect is what might at some earlier time have been defined as direct or indirect. Now, Wickard is a garbage case. It is based on totally wrong understandings of economics. You know, if you're not in the marketplace... You don't magically go join the marketplace because the government says that you can't produce stuff on your own. You could just end up doing something else. There's no reason to believe that Wickard would have affected interstate prices of wheat by not having stuff done on his own. Maybe he would have fed his people corn, you know, or whatever else. But this case became the basis. For all sorts of government overreaching, like Congress tried to do everything that it possibly could, and it would be upheld under a Wickard v. Filburn theory. So for example, in 2005, I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but you have the case of uh, Gonzalez versus Raich, where California has allowed medicinal marijuana. And people sued saying that the federal marijuana prohibition violated congressional authority, exceeded their power under the Commerce Clause because medicinal marijuana was grown within the state of California for California's own use. And the Supreme Court said no, that that didn't matter, that because of Wickard v. Filburn and the cases decided after it, Congress could reach intrastate commerce in weed. Because the production and consumption within California affected interstate weed prices. It's just, it's a trash opinion. Like, if there was one Supreme Court case I could undo that hasn't been undone already, uh, Wickard would probably be it. It's just absolutely terrible. But it did have some benefits. So, this whole era of greatly empowering the federal government is how you were able to have the civil rights movement throughout the 1950s and 60s rely on the courts. To ensure that states were actually holding true to their obligations under the 14th Amendment. So we've talked before, for example, about Brown v. Board of Education, that was in 1954, holding that segregation in education was unlawful, that the doctrine of separate but equal was now uh, not valid. Uh, One of the big cases was Heart of Atlanta Motel versus the United States. So when Congress enacted the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title II of that said that you can't discriminate in public accommodations based on someone's race. Uh, And Heart of Atlanta Motel v. U.S. said, yes, Congress had that authority to enact that. So during this post-Depression era of the court, uh, the government has a lot – the federal government has a lot more authority over a lot more things – uh, some of that is terrible, but it does have some beneficial outcomes as well, particularly as it relates to civil rights stuff. So fast forward to the 1990s and what would you would call the Rehnquist Revolution, as it's talked about amongst lawyer people. And you basically have a trilogy of cases from the mid-1950s, and I would argue a fourth one from the John Roberts Court, the Obamacare case that we're going to talk about, that really pushed back against this overexpansion of federal power and put some force into kind of what are their outer edges of what the federal and state governments can do. So there are four cases that matter. You have Lopez, uh, United States versus Lopez. You have Prince versus the United States. You have Byrne versus Flores, and then the fourth one from Roberts is uh, N-I- NFIB versus Sibelius, the Natural Federa- National Federation of Independent Businesses versus Sibelius. So Lopez versus US struck down the Gun Free School Zones Act of 1990. So this was a federal law that Congress had enacted, uh, basically, purported to regulate all guns, even if those guns had never moved in interstate commerce. Because they were relying on the Wickard v. Filburn precedent that even if it's not interstate commerce, it can affect interstate commerce. And the Supreme Court said no, that that was just entirely too ridiculous, that you had to have some kind of nexus showing that congressional authority uh, was based on something that actually was substantially affecting interstate commerce. And in particular, if I remember correctly, I don't have it in my notes, but I think the key point in Lopez was this notion that you would be charged with a federal crime if you had a gun within a thousand yards of a school zone. Uh, And what the court said was that if a state wants to do that, fine, but for the federal government to do that, that exceeded Congress's power. And it was a big surprise because this was the first real case ever that pushed back against the Wickard v. Filburn precedent and all the cases decided after it. Now, as I mentioned, it only went so far because the court still decided to raise. You'd be amazed what the Supreme Court will let slide when it comes to criminalizing weed. Um, but this was the first major pushback on the extent of congressional authority under the Commerce Clause. Uh, the next case was Prince versus the United States, so this is another gun-related case. This involved the Brady Bill, And one of the clauses in the Brady Bill said that your state and local law enforcement were required, were compelled to run background checks on the federal government's behalf whenever someone wanted to buy a gun. It wasn't something that the federal government was going to do at all. They were going to commandeer the state and local governments to do it for them. And what the Supreme Court said in that case was that, that that wasn't appropriate, that the state government is free to do its own business with those things that are considered a state police power and that the federal government can't compel a state legislature or a state executive to do its bidding, even if it's only temporary. Your options were either you ask the state to do it and they agree, you pay the state to do it and they agree, or you as the federal government do it yourself. But you can't commandeer a state and say, you must do this. And then you have the case of Byrne v. Flores, which was also a 1997 case. Uh, so Prince and Byrne were both decided in 97. Lopez was in 95. Uh, so Byrne v. Flores related to what's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So we're going we're gonna to tangent off here a little bit. You had this case of Sherbert v. Werner from decades ago that governed how we dealt with religious freedom. And the assumption was that all of the First Amendment freedoms were treated kind of the same, that when a statute burdened their exercise, you reviewed them under strict scrutiny, unless certain conditions applied. And this was called the Sherbert test when it comes to religious stuff. So the idea was that if a federal or state law burdens the exercise of religion, under the Sherbert test, you apply a strict scrutiny analysis. So the law is presumptively invalid unless it's uh, narrowly tailored to serve a compelling state interest, et etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well... As part of the war on drugs, the Supreme Court backed away from that because you had Native American tribes who were using peyote for their rituals. Congress didn't like that because that's drugs and, oh gosh, that's so bad. And what the Supreme Court said instead was that rather than using strict scrutiny, that if it's a neutral law of general applicability – that's the magic language – that it would be upheld even if it violated your religious rights. So Congress adopted the RFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, basically decreeing that the Sherbert test would be the law again, basically saying go back to how we used to do it, where we used the strict scrutiny analysis for burdens on religion. And in Byrne v. Flores, what the Supreme Court said, in essence, was that that's fine. As far as the federal government goes, Congress can decide what test the Supreme Court must apply to those particular cases in a federal context, but that it could not compel the state governments to do so, that to the extent the RIFRA tried to bind the states, it was unconstitutional. And the reason why Byrne is important is that as part of the opinion, the court announces what is called a congruence and proportionality test, basically looking at the purported federal power, what Congress is trying to do, and comparing that to the power of the states historically, and determining the congruence and proportionality of the two of them. So basically, you can't have something that is disproportional or unduly coercive. And that is why the NFIB versus Sibelius case matters, because so the Obamacare decision was a lot of stuff. You know i actually i I read the whole decision and the concurrences and the dissents when it came out because I was in law school at the time, and that's the type of nerdy shit that we talk about um But one of the pieces of that decision related to the Medicaid expansion so under Obamacare, if a state did not expand Medicaid, it would lose all Medicaid funding completely, even though Medicaid was one of the biggest block grant programs, it was a boatload of money going to the states. Um, and what the Supreme Court said as part of its holding was that that portion of the ACA was unduly coercive, and therefore it was unconstitutional. And it ended up – that aspect of it was a uh, – a how does this break down? Like seven to three, I guess you would characterize it as. Uh, basically, you had four justices that held that that piece of it was unconstitutional because the whole act was unconstitutional. Uh, Scalia, Kennedy, Alito, and Thomas. Then you had uh, Roberts, Breyer, and Kagan agree that it was unconstitutional, but argue that it could be constitutional if you gave states the ability to opt out. So if they could opt out of Medicaid expansion without jeopardizing all Medicaid funding, that particular portion could survive. Uh, and ultimately, that's where we've ended up. So states can choose to opt out. They still get Medicaid funding. That ends up being the law of the land. But the NFIB case matters from a federalism perspective because it really takes burn and applies it to this very important law that has been you know, heavily debated and governs one-sixth of the economy and everything else and basically says that the federal government can't take away all of your funding because you don't do what it wants. Now, that part matters in part Because Sessions has tried this before. Uh, He sued – I wish I had this in my notes. I feel like he sued someone in Illinois, one of the entities out there, basically saying if you don't help us round up immigrants, we're going to take away all of your funding. And a United States district court said that the federal government couldn't do that because it would be unduly coercive to take away all government funding if you don't cooperate with immigration enforcement. Um, So take all of these cases as a background, this evolution of federalism over time, where we are today with the law, and there are certain things that are what I would consider truisms um, that would apply. So first, of course, is that the federal government has exclusive power over federal facilities under the supremacy clause. They have exclusive power over immigration under the ability to perform a or to enact rather a uniform rule of naturalization. Those are both explicit powers of the federal government. States cannot have those. Um, The second piece is that state governments cannot be commandeered. They cannot be taken over by the federal government. Uh, So, for example, we've talked before about what's called the 287G program where the federal government will enter into contracts with local law enforcement to enforce federal law in exchange for money. The federal government can't decree you're going to have to do this, but they can pay you to do it. Um, Another piece that I didn't mention that should be pretty obvious is that states have a constitutional right to exist. Because they were sovereigns prior to the enactment of the Constitution, their existence is guaranteed within the Constitution itself. There is no undoing a state. Now, that's different compared to a city or a town. So for most states... You can abolish a city tomorrow if the legislature sees fit. So in North Carolina, if the legislature wanted to abolish Durham, they could. They would just pass a bill saying Durham is hereby abolished. The governor would veto it. The General Assembly would override the veto, and that's all she wrote. There is no constitutional right to exist for cities and towns unless you happen to be in a state that is a home rule jurisdiction. We talked about that at the beginning of the podcast. So a home rule state basically has constitutional protections in their state constitution uh, in a very similar fashion to how the protections of the state exist in the federal constitution. Uh, so, for example, North Carolina is not a home rule state. If, Like I said, if they wanted to abolish Durham, they could. Uh, contrast that with, for example, Colorado. So Colorado actually has in their state constitution quite a bit of talk about what powers municipal governments have to themselves. And the state government can't touch those. So a lot of the court fights in those states are similar to the federalism court fights we've talked about here. Is it a state power? Is it a city or town power? How do the implied powers doctrine affect those? And so on. So if you're in a home rule state, a city or town could theoretically have a right to exist, may have certain power to do things without state interference. Um, If you are not in a home rule state, then the state itself is supreme. The municipalities don't care. So you also have the general legal doctrine of preemption. So as part of the supremacy clause, there's this idea that if the government is given an enumerated power to do something, it is supreme within that field. Now, there's some fuzziness to the preemption doctrine that basically if a state, for example, wanted to enact policy that helps the federal objective, that usually gets upheld. But if the state tries to stop that federal objective, it usually gets thrown out. So weed is a classic example. If a state wants to punish weed more harshly than the federal government, it can. But if the state wants to enact a policy that frustrates that federal objective, like, for example, legalizing medicinal marijuana, that would be overturned as unconstitutional, as we saw in race versus Gonzalez. So you take all of that together, and I'll note, for example, the preemption doctrine... Even though it applies in this particular context between the federal and state governments, the exact same legal principles apply between the state and the local governments in home rule jurisdictions. The reason why I mention all that is because I don't know if California is a home rule state or not. I don't think it is. I think it's like North Carolina, but I don't know, and I'm not licensed there, and I'm not trying to get in trouble for unauthorized practice of law. So if you happen to be a California attorney and you know the answer to that question, feel free to tweet us, and I will retweet to our uh, our subscribers But you piece all that stuff together, and what I think would happen in a federal court about this federal power is that they're going to lose on a lot of this stuff. So, for example, states historically have police powers over the businesses in their state. So a state can't enact a policy that discriminates against one type of business versus another because that would violate the Equal Protection Clause. But things like compelling you to set up a uh, LLC or a company or whatever else, making you pay corporate taxes, setting out how your corporate bylaws have to be structured, all that stuff is historically a state police power. So for the bill that related to the work raids, and limiting a private employer's ability to give the federal government access to non-public areas of the premises, I think that would typically be a power that a state historically has been able to wield. The same applies to state and local law enforcement giving non-public information about immigrants and transferring them to federal custody. Now, that's going to be the contingent on the home rule structure. If it turns out California is a home rule state, municipalities might have some power to cooperate with the federal government, regardless of the state saying no. Uh, but that's going to raise a separate issue on whether or not the federal government can sue the state to protect the local government's rights, whether or not they have standing. That's a that's a whole separate nerd out session that I don't want to get into for this podcast. Um, But essentially, assuming that California is similar to North Carolina, uh, the state has absolute power to regulate how local law enforcement acts. If they want to say you're not allowed to do this, then that's all she wrote. The one piece where I think the federal government might win is on this notion of reviewing the detention centers. So it's an interesting question mark because normally – States have police powers over detention centers within their jurisdiction. So if you have a local prison, a local jail, a state penitentiary, the state government has power over all of that stuff. But then it becomes a question of if they're housing federal detainees, is that power eroded? Now, in my gut, I would say no, because I'm fundamentally an anti-federal government guy. I believe in states' rights as they are properly conceived, not the dog whistles that you hear about. Um, but to me, if the federal government wants to continue detaining federal inmates and not be subject to this type of review, they got a couple options. They either buy the land and build a federal prison themselves, or they ship those detainees to another state that's willing to cooperate But it's enough of a question mark that I could see a court going the other way. So that covers federalism. That covers how that hopefully will impact these cases in California. Uh, I'm sorry that this took so long. I didn't realize that we're pushing an hour at this point. Mike is going to clean up some of this, so it'll be less than an hour um, but I hope that you are satisfied that this was at least somewhat educational. I hate that I didn't get to the news this week, but uh, like I said, I feel like garbage and I would feel like more garbage if I were sitting here for two hours going through criminal justice fuckery as well. But we will have the news at some point. Hopefully, it will be later this week. If it's not, it will be next Monday. Uh, so, on behalf of myself, and Mike the Sound Guy, who is probably kicking back and enjoying the basketball game at home. Thank you so much for listening. I hope all of you have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Take care.